0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Welcome to Palm Sunday. As we uh, enter uh, the Passion Week, and first we'll celebrate Easter next Sunday, Uh, we will be looking uh, this morning. Uh, In John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 12 through verse 26, and a little bit beyond, actually. All right, let's, uh, let's read. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, "'Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel!' And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then he remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Uh, this really is a remarkable scene, and um, it's probably hard for us to really grasp uh, what was happening here as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Uh, it was during the Passover celebration, and uh, cons- uh, well, realistic estimates would say that about 100,000 people would travel to Jerusalem for this festival. So already a fairly large city, the capital, of course, of Israel. Uh, but an extra 100,000 people would show up. Um, uh, one uh, one uh, ancient historian estimates the number as high as 2 million, but he had motives to be exaggerating. And, you know, we all love to exaggerate. So it probably wasn't uh, 2 million. It was a lot of people. And um, so the, the crowd meeting Jesus, as he leaves from Bethany and he comes uh, down from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, and up into the city of Jerusalem, uh, the crowd surely was um, tens of thousands, tens of thousands and just imagine them all shouting in one voice and, and like we'll talk in a minute how this got orchestrated like how did they like who had the sign that said on three Hosanna right I don't know um, how it worked well, well actually there's an explanation for this, but um with one voice, they were shouting, just imagine, this would shake the ground, Hosanna! So they shouted out, and Jesus comes down into that. Uh, maybe you've been a part of a, uh, you know, a sports team that won you know, a world championship or a Super Bowl or whatever, and uh, you know, they have these parades like this. And this is really what this parade is. It's a, it's a victory celebration. Uh, it's called, uh, in most Bibles, and oftentimes it's called, Jesus' triumphal entry. Right? And it's this picture of, of a victor, of a champion, who's coming into his city, and people are excited. Uh, but the interesting thing, though, here, is that Jesus hasn't actually won yet. Right? Like, if you celebrate the Super Bowl champions, it's because they actually won the football game. And they, they accomplished victory. If you celebrate you know, some great successes because you were successful. So why are they celebrating Jesus here? Well, uh, the, the rumor that's been going around is that he raised Lazarus, a guy who had been dead for four days. And certainly that got the crowd fired up. But raising the guy who's been dead for four days, like, does that make you king? Well, apparently in their minds it did, right? But Jesus hasn't actually, like, conquered Rome yet. But you would think by the celebration that he has. So uh, it's an interesting story, and at the at, at the uh, and John gives a very abbreviated version. He condenses it really quite briefly, and at the end of it, he says that the disciples didn't get it. Right? the disciples didn't understand what this meant. And if I'm honest, I have to say that I feel a lot like the disciples here. I read this account. In fact, even some of the the, the lines in our our advent reading this morning um, are, are signs that we don't really get what's going on here, right? Because um, here's the thing. they are claiming Jesus as king. And of course in their mind, they're thinking Jesus is going to overthrow Rome and reestablish David's throne, make uh, Israel an independent nation. And we know that that's not what happens. And only that, but we know that Jesus knows that's not why He came. Right? And yet Jesus seems to go along with this. And there's just something about it that seems wrong. Uh, in fact, in our reading it said, "You know, we want parade, parades of success and power. And, and so if, if that's what this was about, <clears throat> why does Jesus go along with it? Why doesn't he go back to Bethany and say, man, I'm not, I'm not having anything to do with this. Why does he march right into the middle of it? And, 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 and welcomes their praise knowing that they got it all wrong. I don't know about you, but that just bothers me. Right? Just the whole thing about Palm Sunday, just and this triumphal entry, just seems wrong. And it's not triumphant, right? We know that Jesus is not coming to triumph um, over Rome. Uh, he's coming to die on the cross. It marks the beginning of Passion Week, and Jesus says in this passage, "My hour has come. It's here now." Right? So, so what is this really all about? And how do we understand this? How do we understand what Jesus? does here, and the fact that he does participate in what's going on. right? How are we to understand all this? Um, Let's look at the story. Let's try to see if we can make some sense out of it and really understand what Jesus is trying to communicate about himself as he enters Jerusalem on this Sunday uh, before uh, he goes to the cross, the beginning of the Passion Week. Um, It does say that... uh, Uh, this large crowd had gathered um, and they had come to the feast Uh, so there's there's actually two crowds that are identified in this account Uh, one is the crowd that had come to Jerusalem for the feast they were there for the uh, feast of Passover Uh, and of course later in the week Jesus will celebrate this feast uh, with his disciples before he is arrested and, and, and crucified Uh, And that's why the crowd is here. And as I said, they they came by tens of thousands. The city would have been jam-packed with these pilgrims. Um, uh, But they had heard that Jesus was coming, and and, uh, this news circulated because of another crowd that had been uh, probably in Jerusalem, probably lived there, and had been around when a few days earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And this wasn't Jesus' first miracle of raising somebody from the dead, But what makes Lazarus unique is that he had been, he had died, and was like fully dead and buried four days, right? So this guy's like not just a little dead; he's like, like the the movie. He's not just mostly dead. He is all dead. He is all dead. dead. In fact, his sister's worried that you know don't open up the tomb because he's gonna it's gonna smell really bad, right? Uh, But Jesus raises him, and it's it's a very dramatic. Miracle as he comes out of the grave, out of the tomb, wrapped in these grave clothes, and the crowds are all watching as this this mummy comes forth from the tomb, and uh, the word spreads, and so people had started traveling to Bethany, which was very close to Jerusalem, not very far away, a couple of miles, uh, traveling there to witness this guy who had been raised from the dead. They didn't believe it, and they went uh, partly to see Jesus, but more so to see Lazarus. And so there's this crowd of people who have gathered in Bethany who uh, are witnessing this Lazarus alive. And, and they're talking to eyewitnesses. Yeah, we saw it. He'd been dead four days. He came out of the tomb. We saw it with our own eyes. And so this crowd in Bethany is sending word back and they're traveling back and forth. And they're, uh, and, and they're the ones spreading this news. And so this, uh, this event is about to culminate in, in, in this parade. As this crowd, it says, they, they took palm leaves, uh, took palm branches, and they went out to meet Jesus. So the word had come that Jesus was leaving Bethany, it was probably in the morning, and he was on his way to enter into Jerusalem. And the crowds, these kind of two crowds, one traveling with Jesus, and one tra- traveling out of the city, converge on, on the Mount of Olives in this massive parade as these, this crush of people, tens of thousands, lined the streets, and, and, and Jesus comes and they are waving the palm branches, shouting, uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as I said, how in the world did that happen? Who orchestrated this? And like, who's passing out cue cards? Okay, on the count of three, we're all going to say together, Hosanna, right? How did this happen? How did it just happen that 50 or 70,000 people all get the idea all at the same time to start proclaiming Hosanna? Did you ever wonder about that? Well, apparently there was like a Facebook page or something. I don't know. At 10 o'clock, no, no, there was no Facebook page. Um, and, and so where did this come from? Where, 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 what is this about? Well, uh, it helps to understand a little bit about uh, Jewish-Israeli history. Um, and uh, there were a couple big celebrations that would have celebrated when they came to Jerusalem. And uh, not the, the Feast of Passover, which is what's going on now, but previously another feast that they all would have attended was the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, every morning they would, they would make little booths and they would bring palm branches to make little, little huts. And they would camp out in these little hunts for, huts for a whole week. And every morning during the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, at the temple, they would sing out the Hallel. And the Hallel was a recitation of Psalm 113 to 118. And I dare you to go home and do this, all right? six chapters of, of, of psalms, and they're not hugely long, but they're not short either. And it takes a little while. Uh, but they would sing out the Hallel, these, these six chapters of psalms. Um, and one, uh, and as they would do that at the Feast of Tabernacles, when they got to Psalm 118.25, which says, uh, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Uh, the word there, save us, in Hebrew is the word, Hosanna. Hosanna. So in Hebrew, it would be, Hosanna! We pray, O Lord. Uh, We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They would say that together. And when they get to that part in the Hallel, uh, all the boys and men would have little bunches of um, palm branches and willows and myrtle. And they would shake these, and they would all cry out together, Hosanna! 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 You've got to try this because you're all just just sitting there, okay? Together on the count of three, you're going to do this. You're going to shake your palm branches and three times you're going to say, Hosanna. Ready? One, two, three. Hosanna! 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 Hosanna!" Okay, now multiply that by a hundred, right? This would have been impressive. Uh, In fact, these these little palm branch thingy dudes were called lulabs, lulabs, right? Uh, And the lulabs actually got the nickname, they're, they're Hosannas, they're Hosannas, right? Uh, So interestingly enough, but that was a different uh, festival, so that doesn't really explain what's going on here, but uh, at Passover, they would also recite the Hallel, right? They would also chant it out. And so as they're getting ready for Passover, it was very natural that they would be reading through and singing and reciting the Hallel, and they would have very fresh in their mind Psalm 118. Um, Now, Psalm 118... Uh, was not uh, uh, doesn't actually mention the king and if we read in here they, they shout out not just blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord that's a direct quote of Psalm 118 Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord but then they add a phrase that's actually not in Psalm 118 they say even the king of Israel okay, this is kind of taking it all to a new level this is uh, adding some interesting interpretation to the, the Halel. Uh, but it wasn't uncommon. And in fact, in, in, uh, by Jesus' day, this had come to be known as a messianic psalm. And, and where it says, the one who comes, blessed is the one who comes. They would have made the one there with a capital O. The one who comes. Blessed is the one who comes. And it was, it was seen as referring specifically to the coming Messiah, the promised king who would restore the nation of Israel. And so they put those two pieces together. And, and, and there's this guy, Jesus, who raises, raises Lazarus. And there's, there's people, and they're excited, and they want a king. And it all merges together with all these pieces. And they go out with their lalubes and their palm branches and Psalm 119 fresh on their mind. And they see Jesus coming as their king. Right? And so this is for them a, a time of celebration because they're convinced this is the Messiah. Could the Messiah possibly do a greater miracle than what Jesus had just done? Surely not. Surely this is the Messiah. And so they were understandably excited. And uh, you could just imagine, again, the roar of this crowd shouting out, Hosanna! And believing with all their mind that finally after thousands of years... After waiting a really, really long time, their king was coming, right? Um, even, it says, the king of Israel. Um, now, John, uh, as he writes his, his gospel, doesn't leave that interpretation up just to the crowd. And he knows astute readers will, will, who know the Bible would read this and go, hey, wait a minute, whoa, stop the bus. Psalms 118 does not say even the king of Israel, Right? They would know that this was added by the crowd uh, uh, fueled by their messianic fever, but nonetheless uh, that's not really was not in the original right but uh, John doesn't leave it up to just the opinions of the crowd. he adds his own commentary on what's happening here and and he says um, verse 14 and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written and this is John's commentary, okay. Uh, Jesus wasn't wearing a billboard that explained this. right? Um, John explains it in his commentary. And he says, uh, just as it is written in Zechariah 9.9 as the reference, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So uh, John doesn't leave it up to just public opinion that, that they think uh, Jesus is coming as a king. John affirms it from Scripture. And he says, yes, Zechariah prophesied this. And Jesus uh, just came, he found this donkey's colt, and John leaves out all the details about how they got the colt. Kind of skips over that part. Um, uh, but he makes it clear that, that Jesus is coming as a king, not just because the crowd votes, <laughs> because the crowd wants it or because they think it's who he is, but actually Jesus is fulfilling scripture here. Right? Jesus is coming as Israel's king. And it's right for him to be escorted into Israel, into Jerusalem, uh, under these terms. Um, because he was fulfilling prophecy. He was fulfilling what was written about him. Um, but in the midst of all this, right, we get this verse 15 where it says, uh, which is true uh, for most of the Gospels of the disciples, and his disciples did not understand these things. <laughs> the disciples had no clue what was going on. And if the disciples didn't understand, cer- certainly the crowd didn't either, right? They didn't understand these things. Uh, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, right? So Paul, uh, Paul, John, who's was one of those disciples, uh, has this insight now looking back, right? But when it was all unfolding and, and all happening, he didn't go, Oh, Zechariah 9.9, of course, behold your king. Coming on a donkey. I remember that. No, it went by him. Right? It just went by him. The whole thing went by him. And, and probably by the crowd as well. So the question for us is, what exactly did they not understand? Right? So they didn't understand these things. What was it that they didn't understand? That they did, did they not understand that they were heralding Jesus as king? Well, surely they got that. I mean, they they wanted that, right? They were the ones who said, you're the Messiah, you're the Holy One. You are the King. The disciples recognized that. So it wasn't that they didn't understand that. Um, uh, Was that they didn't understand uh, the donkey? Well, I think they missed the donkey, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Certainly they didn't understand Jesus' purpose, right? Um, so, so what we find here and what, uh, what, what's important is that John interprets this whole event and describes its meaning based on Zechariah 9, 9. So if you want to understand what was happening here, what he had come to understand is Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9. So let's look at that verse for a second closely, uh, John abbreviates it, but when you look at the whole thing, it, it gives some great insight into what's happening here. Zechariah 9, nine: Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. They were doing that. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. They were doing that. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Uh, so so here's the picture this crowd has gathered and in in their excitement they've all landed on Psalm 18 Uh, they are crying out Hosanna God save us and and there's truth in that and Zechariah confirms that he comes bringing God's salvation Um, but what was the salvation Israel was looking for well it was actually very different than the salvation that Jesus was about to bring right? Um, and, and uh, in John's account it's very interesting because it says that Jesus is coming down from Bethany with this one crowd and he encounters this other crowd and he says that then after they begin shouting after he encounters what's going on it says then he finds a donkey like the other gospels give the picture that somehow this donkey was he was on it all the way from Bethany but John fills in a little more detail that actually the donkey didn't show up until the parade had started and, and that Jesus uh, grabs this donkey, this, and not just a donkey, but the colt of a donkey, a young donkey, and he gets on it, and he rides in, making a very clear and dramatic statement on this donkey. And what is the statement? He says, Behold, your king is come, coming to you righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, not even a full-grown donkey. Um... And the point is that a donkey is not a war horse. Right? Uh, to put it in modern terms, he is not roaring in on a big Harley. Right? He's coming in on a Honda Dream. Right? Um, and, and, and get the picture here. This is what? This is a victory celebration. Okay? As I said, there's no triumph yet, again, other than the fact that they've identified that they want him to be their king. He hasn't won any battles yet. But, uh, but if you did, uh, when, when kings come in, it wasn't, and by the way, it wasn't uncommon or unusual for a king to come on a donkey, right? Uh, donkeys were good, reliable transportation in that day, so that, that was not so unusual. But, but that's not the, the animal of choice for a parade, right? If you're coming uh, in triumph to claim your throne, you didn't come on a donkey, right? That was making the wrong statement, you came on a war horse, right? You found the biggest, shiniest, gleamingest, most powerful horse you could find. And then back in those days, the horse was the ultimate weapon of war. Uh, if, if you were on foot and there's a horse charging at you, it, it's just over for you. You know, you're, you're, there's, you just might as well surrender because uh, you're done, right? The horse was fast. It was smart. It was agile. It was, it was built for war. And so if you wanted to make a statement, you came in on a war horse. Uh, and in fact, in Revelation, we see Jesus, when he comes again, when Jesus returns, he's not coming on a donkey next time. He's coming on a great white horse, because he's coming to do battle. But here, he is not coming to do battle. Right? Um, and, and his point is this, and it went by the disciples, surely it went by the crowd, but uh, by, by he, he participated he didn't deny the fact that he was the rightful king. He did not deny the fact that they should welcome him into the temple as their king. It was prophesied he was their king. Right? Jesus uh, joined in, in what was happening because it was right and true. He was Israel's king. Uh, but he redefines what kingdom is, what his, what his king, what his rule will be. He is not coming riding on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey. Humble, bringing salvation, but he's going to bring salvation in a very different way. Okay? His kingdom is very different than what they are thinking and imagining. And his salvation is not the salvation they expect. Uh, to really get more details about uh, uh, Jesus' rule and king and what, what it means for him to be king, I want to jump over to John chapter 19 real quick. In John chapter 19, I'm sorry, John 18, um, Jesus, uh, it's the night of his his arrest, uh, actually the next morning uh, when he's about to be crucified, and he is now uh, before Pilate. And uh, this idea of kingship, of Jesus being king, is very interesting to Pilate. And in fact, It appears that the religious rulers and leaders who arrested Jesus bring him before Pilate on the charge that Jesus wants to be king. So this very much ties in directly with Palm Sunday and what happened with the triumphal entry. And so in verse 33, uh, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, and here's the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Uh, now we know that Jesus always tells the truth. Jesus never lies right he's very straightforward about everything uh, so how does he answer that question right Is he the king of the Jews? well uh, on one level yes, right Jesus can affirm full on without reservation or doubt he is the king of the Jews um, but Jesus also knows that that um Pilate is ask, asking actually a different kind of question, right? Because Pilate, like the disciples and like the crowd, doesn't really understand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. So, so, so Jesus answered by asking a question. Do you say this of your own accord? Did you make this up? Did you figure this out? And I love this. Jesus is on trial. And he says to the most powerful man in, in, in Palestine at that time, did you like make this up yourself? Or did somebody tell you this? Okay, this is not like not how you like build like friendship with Pilate, right? And uh, uh, Pilate gets and he said, "Am I a Jew, right? Uh, your own nation?" And the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He says, "No, I didn't make this up, and I don't really care, right? I I don't care about you or your country's problems. Right? This is the charges they brought against you, right? Uh, so so Jesus answered him. Okay, then." Here's your answer. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm a king, but I am not a king of a kingdom like you imagine it. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting so that I might be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus makes it very clear that, uh, yes, he is a king, but... uh, his kingdom is very different than what Pilate thinks. Right? His kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it doesn't originate from the power sources and power structures that Pilate imagined. Uh, what, what do kingdoms and how do kingdoms work in, in the world? Uh, well, a kingdom, first of all, in, in, in biblical thinking, is not a, a geographical place. Like we talk about the kingdom of Thailand. And by that, we mean this place, this space where it's marked by very clear borders and boundaries. And to be in the kingdom of Thailand, you need a, if you're a foreigner, you need a passport or you need a, uh, an ID card to be here, right? And that identifies you as part of this kingdom. But in, in Bible times, it wasn't about a place. It was about the effective rule of the king. Right? a kingdom was synonymous with the one who ruled, right? And, um, and so in the Gospels, the kingdom denotes, as one commentator says, the dynamic activity of the sovereign Lord for the salvation of men and women. Okay? God's kingdom is his, his rule, his activity is saving work on the behalf of people. Characteristically, it relates especially to the saving sovereignty of God operative in and through Jesus himself. So, so here's the question. And we don't really think about kingdoms much because we don't really have kings and kingdoms. We vote for things. And nowadays, people get in power because because, uh, a majority of people choose them. Well, in in this day, that would have been kind of weird to them because in, in, in Jesus' day, the way this worked is you got power because you controlled the military. That's how it worked. You were king because you ruled the military and your army was bigger than anybody else's. And that's why Jesus said, "Look, if I was if I was trying to get a kingdom like you're describing, then I would have I would have armed my followers and they would have gone to war and they would have fought with swords, right? They would have rose up against Rome and they would have. But I didn't do that. Right? I came in riding on a donkey, and my one follower had a sword. I made him put it away because he was hurting people. <laughs> right? Peter, well, it hasn't happened yet actually, um, but." Uh, it's, not, it's not his way. Right? This is not my kingdom. My kingdom does not derive from force by conquering people through military conquest. That's not how my kingdom works. Um, and so Jesus continues on. He said, so Pilate says, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say I am a king. You're right, I am a king. But of a different kind of kingdom. And Jesus goes on and he explains what his kingdom looks like. He says, For this pers- purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world. To, to be the king. right? To be the king of Israel. But notice what he says in verse uh, chapter 18, verse 37. I come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In other words, Jesus says, Look, this is how it works. In the world... Power is gained through military force. If I've got a bigger sword or a bigger nuclear bomb or a bigger army, I can rule you. And, and, and we've, we come under the rule of, of governments and nations because they do have power over us. Um, I got stopped the other night, uh, a couple of nights ago, at Sonkran, um, one of these police checkpoints. You know, They're checking for drunk drivers. Thankfully, I hadn't been drinking, <laughs> Wasn't really a problem, but uh, I got to go through. But had I been, and they had, they had dozens of people pulled over, and all checking them out and stuff. They have power to stop you. They have power to put you in jail. Right? That's how it works. And I can't just say, well, no, I'm not going. Right? Uh, That won't get you very far. That's the way the power structure works in the world's kingdoms. But how does Jesus rule over His kingdom? How does He rule over you and I? The reality is God has infinite power. And if God wanted to, he could, he could demand obedience from all of us. Right? He could get out his big stick. And sometimes this is how we think he works. Right? We think God's up there. And if we make one wrong move, God is just waiting to zap us, right? When something ha- bad happens in our life, we go, oh, well, what did I do wrong that God's punishing me? And God does uh, correct his children because he loves them. But that's not how his kingdom operates. The operating principle of Jesus' kingdom is not force. He forces no one into his kingdom. He forces no one to follow him. Uh, He he does not hold a gun to your head. So how then does he gain power? And this is what the world can't understand. If you don't hold a gun to people's head and make them conform, then how do you control them? How do you get them to follow you? Well, Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. This is how Jesus rules. He rules by speaking the truth of reality with such conviction that we see the world differently and we would be foolish not to follow it. Uh, What is God's truth? Well, go back to uh, chapter 12. And Jesus describes truth. Uh, and ultimately, it's gospel truth. right? The truth that dominates our life is the truth that God loved us so much He sent His Son to die for us. Okay? And the more we understand and grasp that truth, the more Jesus controls us. Because we can't imagine living under any other power, under any other ruler um verse 20 okay after after Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and, and kind of the parade is over the scene shifts but the scene still disconnected okay uh, this is still part of what's happening on Palm Sunday and it says now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks uh, they weren't Israelites right But they had come to worship so they were either proselytes or or God-seekers who had come. And they too had heard about Jesus. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We want to see this Jesus. So Philip wasn't sure how to deal with it. So he went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. <laughs> kind of a confusing scene here. Uh, not quite sure if Jesus wants to see these Greeks. Um at this point, the Greeks kind of disappear from the story. And it says that Jesus answered them, probably his disciples, and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to this point, over and over again in the book of John, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. When, when his mom wanted him to turn the water into wine, Jesus' first answer was, my hour has not yet come. But now these Greeks show up, and we don't know what, what alarm sounded, what went off, but all of a sudden, Things have changed for Jesus, and he knows now that this is it. The cross is looming right in front of him, and he knows the time has come. And he says, "The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified." And he wraps up his death on the cross, uh, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, as his as his glorification. Uh, there's a whole sermon there, but I won't I won't preach it right now. Um, uh, and then he says this. He says, truly, truly, here's truth. Truly, double double, double force. Truly, truly, here's the truth. This is my kingdom. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, here's here's the truth. Um, The truth is in the power of a seed. And he gives this parable of a seed. He said, unless the seed dies, unless it's died and buried, it can't reproduce. But in death, it finds multiplied life. Right? Multiplied life. By dying, the seed gives birth to new life. And not just of itself, but it multiplies even more life. And specifically, he says it's a grain of wheat. So you put a piece of a grain of wheat in the ground and it dies. It's dead. But new life springs out from it. And when it becomes fully grown, it produces a head with many, many more seeds on it. Right? And then they die and they're planted and they produce even more seeds. And it's the principle of multiplication. But he said the secret of this is in the dying. Right? It's in the dying. The way... Salvation will come. The way life will come is is by death, right? and, and that's the truth. That's that's the way he brings salvation. Zechariah nine nine. Behold, your king coming, uh, bringing salvation. And of course, the salvation he was bringing was not overthrowing Rome or worldly power or worldly kingdoms but it was the salvation of new life through his death on the cross. That he would break and would conquer uh, man's greatest enemy. Man's greatest enemy is not Rome or government or even Donald Trump, if you're American. (laughs) Uh, He's not the greatest enemy of the world. Um, He may be one of them, I don't know. I'm not going to make comments on Trump. Um, The greatest enemy is what? Sin and death sin and death and Jesus said I came to bring salvation to conquer sin and death and the way he conquers is not through sword not through power or through military might but through death the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world and so Jesus says here is the truth there is power in dying the power of salvation is in Jesus dying as the perfect Lamb of God, whose life was perfect and holy in every way, and it had power to save us, and it had power to change us. Um, and he goes on and he says, and we'll end here, he says, if anyone serves me, uh, he must, I'm sorry, verse 25, whoever loses his, loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Uh, Jesus says straight out, uh, if you want to be part of my kingdom, you have to hate your own life in this world. You have to lay down your life and die just as I did. Right? Why in the world would anybody do that? Right? Uh, especially when Jesus is not holding a gun to our head. He's not saying, lay down your life or I'm going to kill you. Right? Why would we do that? Well, it's because we know the truth. right? We know the truth that life in this world is a dead-end road. And there is no hope for life in this world. And so those who have seen the truth, who have understood what Jesus did and the power of the cross and the li- new life that it gives us, uh, it's easy for us to hate life in this world because there's got to be more than this, right? Is anybody hoping this is all there is? Anybody? Because we need to have like a serious talk. If you think life in this world is, is as good as it gets, right? what Jesus has is so much better. right? So it's actually easiest. For those of us who know the truth, it is easy to hate life in this world with its suffering and its sin and its brokenness. But we can look forward to a different life, a life with Jesus in His kingdom, and it's easy to lay down our life and serve and follow Him because we know the truth, right? We know the truth, and that's why uh, the kingdom of God and why Jesus put so much emphasis on proclaiming the truth. Okay? His kingdom operates untrue, and if we want to grow and walk more and more in His kingdom, if we want to have a life more surrendered, uh, more hating the life in this world, the more loving the life that he has for us, we need to sink deeply into his truth. We need to preach his truth. We need to read his truth that's proclaimed in the word, right? Uh, And as we grow in truth, we will grow more and more under his lordship and power, right? Because we will get it. We will get it. And he gives a couple of great promises here. He says, um, He says, whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. And we have the promise of eternal life. But not just that. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Another incredible truth. That because Jesus died, we have life with him. Always, continually, he is with us. That's truth for us. And finally, the last promise. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. and, and um, We don't deserve this honor, but, but there's going to be another parade someday. right? There is going to be a true victory celebration someday. Uh, I think this one kind of missed it because they didn't really understand the victory. They were celebrating a victory. They were just celebrating the wrong one. They didn't realize that Jesus was coming to give them victory over sin and death. We know that. And there's going to be another celebration some, someday. And instead of being in the crowd, we get to be in, in the parade. Right? And, and God will honor those who serve Him well. Right? Honor those who listen to His voice and who know the truth. Right? Uh, there is eternal glory for us, along with Jesus, right? if we just learn the lesson of the donkey and the seed.